Hello everyone. Welcome to episode 18 of Multiple Calls. I'm Scott Hewlett. There are many experiences that will slip your memory, but being hired as a firefighter isn't one of them. It's a powerful and unique experience that stands the test of time. Earning that moment can often be a struggle, but it's also an opportunity to begin a growth mindset that will serve you both in your life and in the service. There isn't one path, there are many, and that's both encouraging and frustrating because it's not a sure thing. If it was called Fire Easy, everyone would be doing it. My guest this episode will give you a glimpse into two different journeys that landed them in the same recruit class. It's a contrasted comparison that hopefully also resonates the shared lines that run within each of them, and perhaps within you. I'm very pleased to bring you Anthony Birch and DJ Tadino. Hey guys. Hey. Hey Scotty. How's it going? Pretty good. Pretty hey. great, man. Yeah. Thanks I mean, for making the trip. I mean, just going down the list of all these heavy hitters, it's an honor, man. Appreciate it. So to get the voices straight for everyone, uh, that was just Anthony. Hello. And Deej. Hello, everyone. DJ here. Anthony, let's start with you. Let's talk about where you grew up and your family. Well, I grew up in Brampton. I'm a regular middle-class family. Mother was born in Italy. Very strong-willed woman. She made sure that stuff was getting done. And, and then my father, same thing. He's a good man. And I have an older sister. We've definitely become closer you know, I think I was just like the annoying little brother growing up. Right. I was a bit of a troublemaker, for sure. And were you heavy into sports? Oh, big time. I played a lot of hockey in my really early years till I was about like 11 or 12 years old and played soccer as well. And then soccer kind of took over. Like hockey was a bit of a different experience for me. There was good and there was bad to it. Soccer just was something that I was a little bit more passionate about. And then I just started to play a little bit more. And you're mentioning uh, in your bio, you sent to me about comic books and superheroes and video games, and that kind of tied into how you saw firefighters when you first had that exposure. So tell me a bit about that. Watching cartoons like Spider-Man and the X-Men, and then just reading comic books growing up, it's always something that I had like kind of like a secret obsession with, like not maybe not so much anymore, <laughs> <laughs> but it was a huge nerd, but more of a closet nerd, if you will, because it was definitely not the cool thing to like comic books and to like action figures and collectibles and things like that. But like my dad was that type of person, like despite him not being a perfect person, he's always had a good heart and he's always helped people without expecting anything in return. So for me, I've always kind of had a passion for helping people and I see what these superheroes do and I see what these strong people do, help people selflessly. It's kind of like what pushed me in that direction to start to want to help people. I thought growing up, look at these firefighters. They're basically superheroes. They help people no matter what. They drop everything they're doing. They go into burning buildings and to all these crazy environments. And no matter what, they're they're helping people all the time. And it's interesting with comic books too and the superheroes where they usually have some sort of weakness or they're always brought to the brink of death or even killed and they somehow dig deep and battle back and win. For sure. It's pretty interesting. That's something that's always kind of been instilled in me, right? I think that comes from learning about what my parents have been through in their younger years. Seeing that perseverance and kind of pushing through. Everyone telling you it's impossible. I feel like I've always been that kind of person. Like No matter how hard the task was, I try and push through it. I would need help here and there, but I definitely was somebody growing up who, who took what I learned from reading or watching those superheroes and kind of integrating that in my life and just sticking to the task. One of the things we've talked about a number of times is having a bit of an underdog feeling growing up. Do you want to touch on that a bit? Oh man, I we could talk all day about this, but uh, I kind of grew up feeling very, very alone until maybe like a few years ago. I've never really felt completely comfortable in my own skin. I was the youngest of my mom's side of the family and like I didn't really get to see them a whole lot for whatever reason. 
And I never felt like I had anyone to kind of depend on. And I felt like this little kid, like I was always like this high energy kid who kind of, I think was more misunderstood than anything in school or on my street. I was that kid that no one's kid was allowed to play with because I was high energy. I was causing trouble. I was probably swearing or doing something that I shouldn't be doing, but really I was just looking for friends. I was just looking to be understood. But back then I don't think anyone really thought like that, like at least how they do now, right? They would just say, like, well, that kid's just a bad kid. I even remember I had a principal from a school prior to that ask my mom if I was on medication because of, I guess, the way I acted. I was a terrible student. I wanted to focus, but a lot of it was just a lack of confidence and a lack of feeling part of a family. For you, the desire to work fire came early on? My mom, she didn't get me a whole lot of toys, but one thing that she'd always buy me, no matter what I asked her, because they were cheap, uh, were the Hot Wheels. There was a few like little hot wheel fire trucks that I would get. And I'd be fascinated with them because they were like these things with the ladders and little hose rolls on them. And I used to love them. And then I would sit in my room or in the living room all day and I'd line them up like they were on the highway or I'd set up like a little crash or something and then, or a little house fire out of Lego. And I'd sit there for hours on end. But what really pushed me towards fire was when I used to play minor hockey, there was a car wash, Brampton fire showed up. And I think I begged them. I was like, please, like, can I check out your truck? And they let me wash the front of the truck. And then they had to come like physically take me off the front bumper because I didn't want to leave. <laughs> but ever since then, like, I was kind of like, maybe that's what I want to do one day. And I remember bringing that up to my mom as I got a little bit older and like towards high school, you're kind of expected to know what you want to do, or you're supposed to figure that out. So you can go to university and take the necessary courses. But I think we were just driving in the car one day and I said to my mom, I want to be a firefighter. I think that's what I want to do. And she's like, no, 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 you can't be that. (laughs) I'll dig the grave for you or something. It's too dangerous. Italian moms, that's how they treat their sons, right? Like they're no, not my boy. No, he can't do that. I won't put him in danger. But I think no matter what, that's what I always wanted to do. I remember taking like kinesiology and biology and all these other courses to like be a sports physiotherapist or a gym teacher or something like that. But that's not what I was passionate about. My passion, it sat with fire. And then it became more firmly entrenched after you witnessed 9-11. Yeah. I'll never forget waking up and finding out my mom was telling me, because we do have family, not necessarily in Manhattan, but we have family in the New York area. And my grandmother, she was in Canada at the time with us. And they were crying. They were worried. They didn't know what was going on. But just watching the news, seeing those firefighters doing whatever they can to help people covered in all the dust. And they're still working hard. Not just to credit firefighters, right? But to credit the police, the paramedics, and all the other bystanders that were there helping people out. It was a very sad moment in history, but it was an incredible moment at the same time to see the resilience of people. I think that's one thing that definitely said, this is something I want to do. I think it was in grade six when that happened, but something in me was saying, like, I wish I could be there to help these people out. And I think that was the case for a lot of people. I think that's kind of what pushed a lot of people in the direction of wanting to become a firefighter. And you mentioned watching the combat challenge. Yeah. I was taking driving school to get my G2 in uh, downtown Brampton. Brampton Fire hosted combat that year, town like in the Four Corners or Rose Square, right? And me and my buddy were going for lunch. And I think we were almost late for class because of how long we stayed to watch these guys. And I see these guys putting this work in. Like they're moving like these big, strong dudes and these big, strong women. And they're going up and down the stairs. They're dragging these 175 pound dummies and this, and the, and the hose and the rope poles. And, and I'm like, I got to do this. Like, <laughs> <laughs> this is for me. This is awesome. Obviously combat isn't everything when it comes to fire. That's not the highlight of firefighting. It's a great thing to get you in a shape 
and to get you game ready for when it's time to like, you know, start doing work at a house fire or something like that. And you just have some friendly competition. That was another thing that kind of pushed me into it. So yeah. Nice. Yeah, man. Deej, take me back for you then. You didn't grow up far from Anthony, uh, just south of Brampton. Uh, Yeah. So born and raised in Mississauga. Um, Went to school in Etobicoke though. So that was kind of my stomping grounds. I grew up very family orientated fondest memories are doing some outdoor activities like going to the cottage in the summer and you know things like that so inside I have a passion for all these things but on the other side of things I grew up in the city so no one in my family had lived a path that would eventually be my life I kind of took a curve and kind of went my own way so Mm -hmm. but your uncle and your dad taking you fishing at the cottage is sort of your window into that yeah we'd only do a week in the summer but I remember like all the way till nighttime we we'd be out fishing having fun uh, I didn't really know anything about it. My uncle was pretty good at fishing. My dad and I just kind of figured it out. I never went crazy about it. I just, I loved doing it. It might've been just the the bond I had with connecting over that. So. And on the urban side of things, you were into sports and you mentioned boxing. I played every sport you could imagine, uh, hockey, soccer, all those things. So busy family life. My parents dedicated everything to, like anyone in sports would probably have this. You sacrifice pretty much all your time to do it. We're always going to uh, practices and games and tournaments all over, and it was was lots of fun. Eventually, though, I kind of got veered off track and wanted to do something else. So I went into boxing for one reason or another. It's weird. You have these constructs. You have these role models in your life that you really want to be like. For me, it was my grandfather. Everyone in my life is kind of a role model to one degree or another. You take different things from every person. But my grandfather, I really, really looked up to him. He's just a, a solid guy, good character. Maybe I didn't even choose this, but I ended up modeling my life after him. Because he was more of a stoic man. and Oh, absolutely. And what would classically be, you know, termed as a man's man, right? Yeah. That's yeah. Way back, that's what it was described as. Absolutely. He embodied that in every aspect of his life. Morally, his values. And I saw this through his actions. You know, he's never been a man to actually tell me these things. But through his actions, I could sense this. And so those values seeped into me, I think. Now, his whole life, he's wanted to be a firefighter, or at least when he was younger. Uh, He ended up taking a job with Hydro One, which is a a really good job. But he had always wanted to be a firefighter. So I think at a young age, that kind of imprinted on myself. So I think it was always in me anyways. And no matter what path I choose, I, I always feel like I was destined to be this. But going back to the boxing stuff, I always kind of felt like I should be doing things based on how I should be doing things rather than the things I wanted to do. When I got into hockey, I really loved it for so many years. And then I really felt like, okay, when I stopped liking the the sport, I couldn't just stop it. I had to have something else, right? I had to have some other goal. I had to have some other thing so that everyone would think it's kind of like normal to, you know, you're moving on to something else. Okay. It's not like you're just giving up. Your family's dedicating all this time. You got all these pressures. You're putting pressure on yourself. And I was kind of a kid that would put a lot of pressure on myself. So I went into boxing. I went into, you know, some other stuff. Not because I even liked it. Just because I thought it was the right thing to do at the time. So as I'm doing this, I started trying to find myself a little bit more. What do I want to do? And it was a weird concept because you have all these friends and all these sports and you want to emulate your life just like they're doing to fit in. And then I started finding myself really liking things that no one else liked. I wouldn't go on fishing trips with my friends. So I started really enjoying some of my personal things. Like I said, the fishing and the outdoors stuff, Uh, maybe because I had the fond memories attached. But I don't know. I, I started really liking it, but I didn't want to show it to anyone else. 
because I wanted to fit in at the same time. You fit in with certain groups of people because of maybe the activities you do, the persona you put on. And if you were anyone else, you wouldn't really fit in. So it kind of veered off into two pathways. Anthony talked a little bit about comic books and the things he really enjoyed, but he could never be vocal about that with his friends. I got into computer games when I was younger, probably as like an escape for some things, but I never told anyone. Like I'd never be confident telling any friends or anything like that. I just kept that stuff to myself. So there was a divide in things that I liked doing for me and then things that I liked doing for the outside world. Um, Internally, I would start to identify, okay, these are the things I like doing. How can I bring that into my other life? It, It took a long time to really figure out who I was and be confident in that. At a young age, I dealt with a lot of stress because of that it was just a wedge driven between who I should be and who I felt like I was not able to be both of them at the same time everyone goes through their own battles it's just how you deal with it so I think I learned a lot of stress coping techniques at a young age were they the best coping techniques probably not but you learn techniques and eventually you perfect them over time you're working on it silently you know But the positive end of it was you mentioned being able to get along with a variety of different people. I could contribute that to maybe my grandfather there because I see the way he treats other people. He's always the peacemaker. He's always the one to help other people to build bridges. Um, I look at my family. I have an older sister and a younger sister, so I'm in the middle there. So could come from that too. But anyways, that was always my kind of standpoint. I always wanted to be that. So I try to bring that to the table. And that's not how other kids are all the time. But I still made friends pretty easy because I knew how to get along with kids like that. So I'd learn a lot about different people's personalities. And I could talk to different groups of people. You're analyzing constantly. It helped then. It helps in this kind of job. You're dealing with so many different types of people. you got to be able to communicate with them, be able to understand and put yourself in their shoes. Does that resonate with you, Anthony, that same kind of feeling of two worlds? Yeah. I've always had this very self-critical view of myself, and it was almost like a constant war. Like, I can screw up the smallest thing, and just in my head, I'd just be going off, calling myself every name in the book. Like, you're a piece of shit. You're like, how could you fuck this up? This is ridiculous. You shouldn't even be here. You're not even worth this. And that's how I would talk to myself, literally. I don't know how that manifested itself in me, but it did. Being this person who just wants to feel part of something, feel part of a family, feel appreciated. And like DJ, it really got me to some very low points, especially when I was in high school. You want to be friends with everybody. You want to be that person like, you know, that walks into a room like, hey, what's going on? How you doing, Bertie? And whatever. But for me, it came to a head at some points where I'm just like, I felt so alone, so not part of anything. It's interesting, though, that the three of us had a kind of a similar experience in that sense. We made it through yep. by luck or by self-design mm-hmm. or whatever it is. Like we all could have slid oh, the yeah. wrong way. Yeah. Distinct why in the road. Yeah. Could have gone either way. And it yeah. happens for some and, and not for others. Mm-hmm. Well, I think mostly by luck sometimes or with the people we're around and yeah. what we're exposed to. And Well, luck's not a terrible thing for a firefighter to have. It's not. <laughs> no. So. No. Or even just having the awareness to recognize like, right from wrong or like when you have good people in your life, finally, I didn't really feel like I started to have a mentor or big brother figure, if you will, until I was in my twenties and then starting as a volunteer in Caledon. That's when things started to kind of like come full circle a little bit. So Deej, things didn't really kind of click for you until 
these two worlds came together and you, when you discovered drama class in high school? Yeah, I found drama class kind of by fluke. I did a play or something in grade eight when I was younger and it was actually pretty good. Anyways, in high school, I found drama class and it was amazing because you could do whatever you wanted in that class and not be judged. You could really be yourself and I could be myself. I can act. We did improv. I loved it. So I started to build that confidence a little bit more in, in who I was and that was okay to be who you are. Then I started finding the more I got with that, the more it turned out people accepted it. The people were like, wow, you're, you're really good at this. I was like, yeah, and it's something that I like doing too. Wow, this is a weird sensation. It's a weird concept to grasp. So I pursued that and put all my energy kind of into that. And it was awesome because it wasn't just for expressing my creativity or any of that stuff, which I do believe is really important, but it was just to get with the fact that being yourself is okay. So you get into this thing by fluke. Yeah. Kind of start to find yourself. And then you get picked up by an acting agent. Yeah. So how did that come to be? Bounced around all over the place. I I distinctly remember I, that day that happened. I went into drama class, and I went in early. And there was supposed to be some TV agent here. Oh, you and, knew they were there? Yeah, but like I didn't know much about it. And I didn't really care about it that much. So I showed up, and there's this agent. And I just shook his hand. Like My grandfather always... My father, everyone always taught me, you shake someone's hand, you look in their eyes, you introduce yourself politely, and that's it. You you be yourself. So I, I did that. Sat down. I guess that alone made an impression because I was kind of the only one who went forward and did that. Anyways, he did this presentation to the class, and then at the end of it, my teacher came to me. He never even really looked at me in the whole thing. My teacher came to me and said, hey, uh, this big agent wants you to interview with him. And I was like, what? Like, are you... Me? I've, why, I didn't understand anything. And I was like, I don't know, the first thing about TV acting, I have basically no experience. He didn't even see me act. But at the time, I had this long blonde hair. I guess Justin Bieber stole my style, if you want to imagine what it looked like. <laughs> um, anyways, I had this certain look or whatever. So I, I went hard. I started studying these monologues. He's like, okay, prepare two monologues for me. I didn't know the first thing about how do I do a monologue? How do I act it? I was new to the whole thing. I just was having fun in the class. Anyways, I, I show up for this audition. I prepare this one scene, which is like a person on their deathbed from cancer, like an old person. And then I prepared some other scene and it was nothing like me or who I was. I was, I was trying to do something that was like super amazing. And then as soon as I spit it all out, he's like, wow, that was, uh, that was horrible. <laughs> and I just like, oh, God, like dreams crushed. So I was like, OK, well, thanks. Um, maybe I'll just go on my way now. And he's like, no, I I see some potential. I want you to do some acting classes. I want you to do this, this, this and this. Put all your energy into this. Can you do that? I was like, yeah, for sure. And this agent was the best agent in Toronto at the time. So he had like various huge names. So I was like, how is this all happening right now? Like, I, I didn't understand. But I was like, I'll just follow it. I'll just follow what I like doing. I'll follow my gut. I'll start trusting that. So I think that's about a time I started learning to follow my gut feelings and follow what I like doing. And it turns out there's some level of success when you do that. Like when you're on your right path things just happen positively. And was it a lesson for you in taking a risk and just doing something and being willing to 
possibly do horrible at it and fail at it, that is, doesn't always result in negative outcome. Absolutely. Especially that moment he said I was horrible and that uh, it was my worst fear. That's like the worst thing that could have happened in that moment. Well, worst thing that happened is he says I'm absolutely horrible. And you never want to hear that, especially when you're putting yourself in a vulnerable place. But going through that and what was on the other side was, oh, this is now constructive criticism. And now I have a pathway of how to get better. And it's okay to be bad. And it's okay to start from zero because in front of you, you as long as you have an open mind and you're willing to learn, you can learn all these things and there's a path for you as long as you have the passion, determination. So, But then you actually started getting gigs. Yeah, so, <laughs> which is bizarre to me too because he said take these acting classes. I got put into like the highest level acting classes when I didn't even have the basics. So I got like, let's say there's levels A through E. I was training with like one of the best coaches on level E. And that was my start. So I was I was going to these acting classes and I recognize all these people. There's like five or six people in my class. And I could pick them out for different TV shows or movies they're on. And then there's me who has never done a single thing. And I'm like, okay, just go with it. Like this is terrifying. And you might not know what you're doing, but just go with it and try to learn and soak up as much information as you can. Kind of a bit of foreshadowing there. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. So... I, that's what I did. I just, I watched everyone. I, I learned from what they were doing and I asked a lot of questions and I kind of let people know where I was at, but at the same time, I wasn't going to say, okay, I don't know how to do this. I was just going to jump in and do it. So when there was a scene acting with someone else, I was scared shitless to do it because they were pros, but I was like, okay, I'll just go in and do it. Worst that could happen is they tell me I'm horrible and here's how to improve. <laughs> so I started doing that. It really started paying off. There's even more of a divide, though, going back to this wedge between myself and what everyone else is doing now. So when people in high school are going to parties and stuff, I had an audition, so I had to prepare. So I'd be like, no, I can't anymore. I got to stay home. I'd stay home and I'd prepare and prepare and prepare. And then you'd go to these auditions, so many of them, and right off the bat, they realize you're not good. And they're just like, okay, nope, next. And you're like, Why? why am I doing this? And you're like, I'm giving up spending time with friends and stuff. But then there's this other side that's like, no, follow what you love doing. Follow this, follow this passion. Don't give up, keep going. Okay. You're doing this for a reason. So you push through and eventually, yeah, I started seeing a lot of success, a lot of success in a short time, short amount of time. Yeah. So I think it was about four or five months and I booked like four or five decent gigs and, uh, it, it was crazy because things escalated so quickly. I was just going to university at this time. So I graduated high school. I landed a few gigs. It turned out the gigs were playing on TV all over the place. And now something that I really liked doing that before I was never confident in. And before I never wanted to show the outside world was the thing that everyone loved about me. And I was like, this is so bizarre how this is working out. But it reinforced the fact of following your gut. But at the same time, you feel, I think Rob Martin mentioned this about imposter syndrome. Yeah, totally. I, that hit me hard right after. So that's the reason my career was short in acting. The craft dinner commercial, I guess, is my claim to fame here. Katie. It, Katie. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I was the star of this craft dinner commercial and it started playing on like every single station, on every single TV. And it was like one of those overplayed ones. 
So at first it was really cool. Like, I'm like, well, wow, look at my TV. And university students eat a lot of craft dinner. They eat a lot. It's like the staple. <laughs> right. So it's playing all the time. It's playing on different people's computers during my classes. It's crazy. And like, yeah, it's such a small thing looking back in the past. But at the time, it was mind blowing. People would introduce me. Oh, here's the craft dinner guy. And people would come to meet me. I was like, what is this? You're getting drawn into parties. You're and... getting drawn in and introduced. My passion was the acting portion of it. And now it's something else. And now it was people are liking me because I'm showing off what I like to do, which is acting. And now it's people are liking me because I've experienced this small amount of fame. And they want to have an in as well. Sure. Yeah. I don't know what they want. You stop. You don't know about your friends. You're like, okay, all my old friends before this point are good friends. And then all the new friends, I don't know. Do they like me because they know who I am? Do they like me because of this, that? So it really messed with my head. It didn't sit right. So then again, I was like, okay, I got to get back to what I like doing. I got to get back to this. So I stopped acting. I was in university, so I was like, I want to pursue this education. So firefighting was still sitting there in the back of your mind, but you knew it would be hard getting on young. Yeah, so just jumping back to the earlier story of how I've always wanted to be a firefighter, that was always in the back of my mind. I'd known that I would be a firefighter one day, but everyone had said, basically, you can't be one till you're like mid-20s. You have to have life experience. You have to do all these things. So I kept that in the back of my mind. Then the other side of me wanted to prove that I was smart as well that i could do all these other things so i just stuck firefighting in my back pocket pretty much um actually i i did a firefighting course it was like the intro course and i was only 16 you're supposed to be 18 to do it but you acted like you were 18 yeah i acted i somehow <laughs> got in <laughs> yeah it's good at the acting portion um i somehow got in i'd take the subway like an hour and a half or whatever an hour to go across the city to take this course on Wednesday nights while I was in high school. And it was like the firefighting level one course. It's intensive stuff. Like you have to really be studying and really be interested in this stuff to get through it. So I ended up taking the test at the very end and I failed it. And it just crushed me because I was like, okay, firefighting, like I, I have this passion to be it, but I failed this course. It must mean I'm not this. So I went on anyways Further, I said I'd do university first. I'd get a degree, like make my parents happy in that regard. I did it in business because I was smart at math and some other things. And I said I'd pursue that, and if firefighting comes back to me, I'll do that. In my heart, I always knew I would eventually it would come full circle, but you don't know the path at the time. Right. So I just pursued that, almost forgot about firefighting at the time. After the acting and the university and all that stuff, I was like, okay, I'm going to prove myself. I'm going to whatever, make a lot of money or whatever I thought was important to me at that time. So, and then some summer labor jobs. Yeah. In university, halfway through, I realized I didn't like that either. So I was doing business and I was like, oh my God, I just, I gave up firefighting. I gave up acting. I'm doing business now. I'm pursuing this and I don't even like it. Why? This is terrible. So I was like, well, I'll finish this. I got to finish this. The summertime, I did some labor jobs because I was accumulating an insane amount of student debt. So I was like, I gotta, gotta work. I've been working labor jobs all the time since I was younger, but it was actually really great. It was cool doing something active. I was working all day outside and you're putting in sweat hours and I was loving it. And you're working with all different types of people. So your communication levels go up, you know, you're having fun 
and it's hard work and it was as tangible as I really enjoyed it. So that all came to play a bit later in my life, but I continued like that on, on summer jobs. And then um, I guess when I graduated university, I still had this huge amount of debt over my head. And I was like, okay, I went through university. I got this business degree. I'm going to put it to use. Took a job downtown Toronto doing IT sales of all things. <laughs> so this ties into my computer game kind of personal thing. I was like, okay, I'm decent at IT, I suppose. Sales, I've been messing around with so many different friend groups my whole life. Um, I've been talking to so many different people, my business skills, all this stuff. That'll all tie in. So I took a job IT sales. Somehow I sold myself on the interview. It was a hard process getting in. And then when I was in, I found out, again, I had no idea what I was doing in this job. I did not know IT to this extent. And I was terrified of calling people on the phone. And my job was cold calling people, pretty much. <laughs> Perfect. And then selling something I had no idea about. So you suck at IT, you suck at phoning people, and you suck at selling. I'm in just a horrible position. Right. <laughs> but what I did have was a ton of experiences in my life that I could draw upon. One of them being when you're in a really uncertain situation and you're in a really vulnerable spot, just draw on everything. And the worst that could happen is you learn from it and go through. So I started calling people and talking about what I loved, fishing, the outdoors, things like that. And not even IT because I was just like, what am I going to do? Try to pretend to sell something? No, I'd be honest with people. Listen, I don't know any of the answers here. Like, I don't know any of this IT stuff, but... My team really knows whatever questions you have, I'll get the answer for you. So I don't know it, but because I was transparent, people kind of like that. So your go-to was to be authentic. That's it. Just And people actually probably appreciated speaking to an authentic person. Absolutely. So here comes the reinforcement again of being yourself, true to yourself and not pretending to be kind of someone else. So my territory was in Alberta and I'd been out there once or twice. And I know like the fishing's great out there and it's, oh, it's beautiful. So I'd call them and be like, hey, how's it going? Did you get out to the river? Things like that. So people would enjoy talking to me. I'd enjoy talking to them. I made all these friends. And then somehow it worked because they just want to talk to me and buy all their IT through me, even though I didn't know what I was doing. I connected them to the right people if they needed to talk to them. I just connect the conversation. I'd be silent. They'd talk their IT and then the deal would go through me. So I ended up having a lot of success in that career. The short amount of time that I was there, I started winning trips for like top salesmen and all these things. And here I am still not knowing anything about IT. So I was <laughs> going through this funny situation. About the same time though, I realized after I paid off the student debt that I wanted to do something more fulfilling. Okay, I'm good at this. I'm good at anything I really try and put my authentic self into. Not because I have the skills, but because I'm more willing to learn and because I'm able to recognize that I don't have the skills right now, but I have lots of people around me who do have the skills and I could learn from them and I could apply what I know in my individual life. So I was again faced with, okay, I'm going to quit this semi-secure job where I'm making some good money and I want to do something that I really want to do. So I looked back. I liked the physical labor jobs. I liked being outdoors and doing that kind of stuff. And then the idea of firefighting floated back into my mind. That's something I could probably, I was in my early 20s, that's something I could probably go for now. I've used my university, I've justified that or so in my mind. 
So I tried to get a job doing forest firefighting. So I booked my vacation for the year, took the week-long course. During that vacation time, I took my medical, my standard first aid. So I got really prepared for that. And on my lunch breaks, now that I was good talking on the phone, I never would have done this before because I was terrified of the phone, I would go and I'd just call up each of the cities and I'd ask them, I'd be like, hey, when are you hiring? When are you opening? How can I get on? And I'd just call every day and I'd keep a notebook of who I called, what date. All this stuff I've been learning through the IT sales, which I thought was just like this random, no good job. I just picked up all these skills. And then I could tell them about my physical labor jobs. I could tell them about using chainsaws. I finally got hired um, onto one city. And the same day I had a really weird gut feeling to just spontaneously check jobs like around Canada. I was like, Banff is beautiful. I'll check Banff Kijiji. So I went there. And I saw a freshwater fishing guide. And I was like, this is crazy. Why am I doing this? I just got hired. I'm ready to go. I didn't say yes, but I was like, let's, let's check this out. And I saw three years experience at like a really good lodge and all these lists of criteria. And I was just like, I don't have any of this. I just got the first aid. So I have that, but I'm an IT salesman in Toronto. These guys are never going to take me seriously, but something inside said, you could do this, go for this, this is the way. And I think, you know, those other things in my life where I chose that path and it really paid off, led me to make this decision and trust my gut. So I send a resume and attached with it, like the resume's not long. I just basically say, I could talk to people like on the phone pretty good in my job. Um, and I've done some labor work, that's it. And I've taught a lot of people how to fish. I fish all the time. I was a self-taught fisherman fly fishing and that stuff I taught myself and at the time maybe I wasn't even that good at it but I attached four pictures of me holding fish <laughs> <laughs> to like a professional resume so it's like those selfies you got holding like a bass or something like that yeah, really so, close to the lens yeah exactly so it looks bigger yeah. it's like I know how to take a fish picture or something like that so I attached those and I sent it off and I got like a pretty much one word response back. Oh yeah, sorry, you don't have like a lot of the required skills. And I was like, it's never stopped me before. And that is the worst I could hear right now. So how do I keep going forward? Well, I followed up with another email basically saying, hey, but I was also camping in Algonquin Park a couple of weeks ago and a bear came up to the site. And this is what I did. I acted in the moment and I scared it off. And I attached another fish picture. I sent that off. <laughs> another. By the way, I still catch fish. Yeah. <laughs> a little bit later, I got another email back. And by this time, like a day or two has gone by and I still haven't taken that firefighting job. So now I'm committed to this. I'm like, this is what I'm going to do. I know this. I sent another just to follow up. And I'm like, hey, I really want this. Um, I forgot to tell you, I've taught my little cousin how to fish, which was a little bit of a stretch because like, Maybe we went out fishing one time. It was kind of a disaster. But anyways, I still said that and attached another couple of fish pictures. And the guy's like, finally, he's like, okay, okay, I'll give you a call. And then I was like, yes, get in somewhere with this. So I get a call from what would be my future boss. And he just has a conversation with me for about an hour. And we just talk about almost everything besides fishing, which is kind of crazy. And he's like, okay, the fishing and the skills of the job, we could teach you. But what you bring to the table in your own personal life, your conversations with people, how you talk about things, that we can't teach. And that's what you have. So come up in June. So in saying that, it was a really, really cool moment for me because 
I was like, okay, everything I believed before is true. You don't have to have all the skills, all the requirements and stuff, as long as you're willing to learn. So that solidified it for me. And that was kind of what I see as the beginning of fusing those two lives together, of fusing your gut feelings and your intuitions and the things that you really are with your actual life. It didn't matter about fitting in with anything anymore. It just only mattered about following what I'm kind of supposed to do. And it, it's paid off since then. So, Anthony, your next step was the Ontario Fire Academy and you got into some construction gigs. Yeah, so uh, when I applied to go to the Ontario Fire Academy, they were just starting out. Actually, on the way up here, I showed DJ the old school where it yeah. used to be. Looked like a restaurant. It did, yeah. It was like an old banquet hall or something like that. But the instructor, or the head instructor, I should say, Larry Matlashewski, who uh, former Brampton captain, I yeah. believe. Shout out to him. Yeah, Larry, thanks for everything. He transformed it into a fire hall, and he did the best with what he had. And I had a lot of fun when I was there. My head was still pretty far up my ass like it was in high school, <laughs> but you know, I managed to focus when I needed to and, you know, and meet the goals and meet the deadlines that I had to. We had a good group. Everybody was still kind of figuring their own lives out, but I feel like we all did pretty well when we were there. When we went down to Texas, oh man, did you have to go to Texas? Or? No, they just switched it for our year. I think it was the first year. Yeah. So anyway, when we went down to Texas and uh, we experienced that, we got our asses handed to us every day. It was awesome. Don't get me wrong. So that's the type of training I'm into. But it was definitely a time in my life that was very humbling because like you really learn what the job's all about and basically everything that you need to go through for the people that you're trying to help, the amount of weight that you're carrying, the environments that you're put in, being in a room, they call it like a campfire burn. So you can feel the heat and watch the thermal layer in the room and so on and so forth. And they make us take our glove off and we slowly bring it up, our hands burn and they get us to stand up like right in the middle of the smoke. And they're like, okay, take your regulator off for a second, take a big deep breath in and then put your regulator back on. <laughs> right? So luckily we all had the wherewithal to do that. But holy crap, did our throats hurt afterwards, man. I mean, some people would think about that and like, that's freaking nuts. But it was a deeper appreciation for what we're getting ourselves into. There was this one instructor and DG might have heard about him when you were going to school there, uh, Big Mike. I heard he was, about him, yeah. Oh, yeah. He was like three-time Houston Firefighter of the Year. He's this big, big dude. Like one of the only guys I've ever seen like fill out his gear, like where you can see the muscles through the gear, right? <laughs> like he would just run us ragged. If we messed up, if we put our hand on the wrong spot while we're climbing the ladder, right? We're doing laps. We're lifting this big piece of pipe, just doing shoulder presses, right? Till we can't do it anymore. It was an awesome experience. I would do it all over again. You know, I was 19 when I did it. So despite still my head not being in the right place or being mature enough to be like a full-time firefighter yet, I still had the appreciation for what this job brings and what we have to do. And something else that gave you perspective on what you were going to need to get on was meeting some of the competition when you started applying to a few departments. DJ, you can probably attest to this too, man. When you're just starting to get a feel for what applying to fire departments is like and what you need to do, like all the volunteer work and all the tests, all the interview prep. Oh my God. It's like a marathon mixed with an obstacle course mixed with like a tough mutter and whatever else you can throw in there. Of course, everyone has their own journey going through it. But for me, it was definitely one of those. And then there's that aspect when you're going through the interviews that there's like a fake finish line. As soon as you are getting an interview, you're pumped up. Okay, I'm going to get this. Yeah. And then it's just like, nope, you're going to actually keep going. Yeah. And there's no end in sight. Yeah, again. your foot's through the door and then they slam the door in your face. <laughs> but yeah, going to some of these tests, like you go to Brock and do the testing down there, or you go to Festi and do the OFAI testing, and you see some that are applying. 
and you, they look like they're the real deal. They're fit, they're strong. They just seem like they got it all together. And then you go down the rabbit hole of getting involved in that conversation. Oh yeah, I heard this many people failed yesterday, or I heard there's this much math on this test or the VO2 max, they run you to kill, you can't run no more. And then you see people sweating, just freaking out. And that's one thing I realized going through the process, whatever you do, just don't buy into the hype. Mm -hmm. Don't do it. Just try to stay focused. Like don't be a dick when you're there. Right. And just don't talk to anyone. You know, you can get to know people, but when that conversation starts, it's best just to kind of stay out of it. And that's what kind of helped me as it's well. It's not going to make you better. Oh, absolutely not. You're probably going to trip a lot of times and you're going to fall a lot of times. You're going to fail a lot of times before you actually get on. Absolutely. Whether you're trying to get onto a volunteer department or you're trying to get onto a full-time department, it doesn't matter. It's a really tough process. And you start to learn more about yourself, but you also take away something from it. The biggest thing is just is if you get knocked down, you got to get back up quick. It doesn't matter the competition that you're going up against. You really don't know any of these people. And all the power to that everyone who's going through it right now. Keep fighting, keep going because man, it's tough. But you knew from the experience at the academy and then from running into some of the competition, starting to understand what the process was that you needed to gain some more life experience. Oh, hell yeah. And you weren't quite ready yet. So bring me through Dependable, how that came to be. Oh, that was completely and utterly by luck. And it's funny because like a lot of people are like, oh, so did you know somebody there? Or, nope. And then the family that owns the company, they're all Italian and me being Italian, they're like, oh, are you related to, you know, to the family? And I'm like, nope. <laughs> right. And that's how a lot of people feel like I ended up there. But what ended up happening was, is that uh, when I finished college, right, I worked a lot of different jobs, mostly like as a laborer, right, like for cash. And that's how, and like DJ, that's how I kind of gained some like, you know, construction experience, right, learning building construction and how things work and electrical and concrete work and framing and whatever. And ended up working for a small general contracting company. And they were honestly fantastic guys. It was more for me, like again, head way up my ass. And I probably could have made better use of the, my time there as an employee, but again, like other outside influences and other things kind of like took me away from that, right? So eventually I ended up getting laid off. So for a couple of months, I was like looking for jobs and I couldn't find anything. I was going into debt, like my credit card bill was stacking up. I was still paying for my truck at the time, couldn't pay for that. And I was getting into basically like the lowest point of my life. Just nothing was going right in my life. It sucked. And again, already being a self-critical person as I am, some of the more closest people who know me, they know very well how easily I can get into my own head. Right. So yeah, it wasn't a good time. And, um, my mother was looking at newspaper articles because of course my mom being my mom, she'd always try and help out any way she can. And even though I'd be like, mom, leave me alone. Don't worry. I'll figure it out on my own, blah, blah, blah. And she ended up coming across a newspaper article and it said, shop helper, call this number or come to this address. And I knew I needed something at least for the time being till I found something that I liked. And at this point, other than having a little bit of construction experience and going through the Ontario Fire Academy and graduating that program, I had nothing under my belt for fire. So I was pretty low man on the totem pole when it came to all that. I went, ended up going there. I went to go uh, apply for a bunch of different jobs that day. And I remember even like being pissed off when I went there because prior to that, I went to go apply for a job like somewhere in Etobicoke and I got caught in a speed trap and I ended up getting a ticket. So it was a shitty day. <laughs> you know, like, like it sucked man like i like it was the worst so i think even at that time they usually stop and they shut down around five o'clock so it's like 4 30 there's barely anyone in the office and there's this nice lady there and and debbie if you ever hear this thank you so much for taking my resume and passing it off to the bosses appreciate it she took it and then she's like okay yeah someone will contact you so something in me told me go back because 
basically when I went in there, I seen all these like petroleum trucks because they do both. Like you have dependable truck and tank and then you have dependable emergency vehicles. I remember seeing some fire trucks. I'm like, what the hell do they do here? I didn't even know what dependable was. I go into the waiting room that they have just before you go into where the front office or front foyer is. And I see these pamphlets and I see all this stuff on the wall about fire trucks and how they build fire trucks. I was like, I got to freaking work here, man. This is awesome. Shop helper. I don't care what I have to do. Just give me a job. I'll do whatever you got. I'll clean the toilets. I don't care. So I came back right when they opened and I seen another receptionist. Her name was Chris. She still works there. She's awesome. And uh, I said, hi, I was here yesterday, but I just wanted to bring another cop my resume in uh, for the shop helper position. And luckily it was on the emergency vehicle side. Okay. Yeah. I'll get you to talk to Tom. And again, thank you, Tom, for putting up with me for the, my first year working there. <laughs> he took me back and, and I was honest with him because the first thing he starts pointing out while he was on there is, like, okay, you see you have your DZ. That's great. And you have all this fire stuff. Do you want to be a firefighter? Even now they've had guys who will go there, they'll work there and then they end up wanting to become firefighters. Right. And then eventually they leave. So of course, being in that type of business where you're building and servicing fire trucks and other fire equipment, you need people there for the long term. So I told them I definitely want to be a firefighter. And I definitely believe being upfront and honest from the get-go instead of trying to hide it because no one appreciates that. I think people appreciate the honesty and the authenticity a little bit more than, you know, you're just trying to bullshit them. People can kind of figure that out as well. I told them that straight out. And I said, like, listen, like, I don't like, I don't think it's going to happen for me anytime soon. I got a long way to go. But while I'm here, I'll give you the best version of me that I can. And thus began the time when I started to be not such a dumbass anymore. Again, it came with a lot of hard lessons working at Dependable because it can be a very hectic and tough place to work. I'm not trying to paint a bad picture of it. It's honestly a great place to work. I had a blast when I was there and I learned so much. It helped because I was passionate about what I was doing. I like, you know, I wanted to make sure I did a good job. I wanted to help the guys there. I started pushing a broom. I mean, who's passionate about pushing a broom? Nobody <laughs> like, God damn it. I got to sweep this stuff again, or I got to take out the garbages and bust my back. But I did that every day, every morning, whatever it was, hold the wrench for the guys. And sometimes the guys will get pissed off at you if you don't do something right. But you drew on a lot of lessons from your parents, right? Respecting your elders you yes. mentioned and also owning your mistakes. Yes, definitely from my mom. But I think what resonated with me the most, and my dad and I have always had a very, it's a hell of a lot better now, a very up and down roller coaster type relationship. But just his character, seeing how he helped people and just the way he was for people, just giving, caring, always trying to be there for his friends or family. Like I've failed at a few ventures already, whether it was construction or even trying to get into HVAC like my dad's in, right? Like he's been in that career for 35 years now. He's brilliant, right? He's actually a really smart guy. I don't think he gets the credit he deserves, but just learning that and then having these guys not necessarily give me shit, but like they would say like, hey, you messed up. You need to fix that. Like, you can't mess around with that and even make the mistake again. It's just like, okay, kid, like, let's go, you know, figure it out. But what was nice about it is that if they see you try, if you care, if you're not just that punk kid or that person who's just like throwing his hands up in the air and coming up with every excuse in the book as to why you couldn't do it correctly, if you take a step back and you own it and you're just, okay, I messed up, I'm going to try again. And that's where all this stuff kind of comes full circle, I guess, where experiencing that and having that manifest itself in me, I feel is like why... I'm definitely the person I am today. And luckily, being mentored, shout out to Pino there. He helped me quite a bit. Joe Cabral, a lot of tough love, lots of tough love. But those guys helped me learn a lot about myself and what it is to be a professional and a man. Drawing from these childhood experiences and lessons and then putting them into practice and being authentic, you started to get promoted. Yeah, I was working hard and they started to see, I guess, some potential in me. 
being used to people, you know, count me out just because of being this misbehaving little kid all the time. I remember I was taking out the garbage one day and then uh, one of the other bosses, his name's Carmen, he kind of caught me outside in the yard and I was throwing garbage in the bin and I was walking back and he stops his truck that he's driving around the back and he goes, hey, what are you doing? I go, I'm just throwing the garbage out, man. He goes, you should be doing something more than this. I seen you around. You look like you're a bright kid. You shouldn't be just sweeping floors and... After he left and he said that to me, like I was almost brought to tears because I've never had anyone just kind of pull me aside and say, you're doing well, kid. Keep it up. It's just some person that's not, you know, your parents. Because like, you know, everyone says like, oh, your parents are supposed to love you. So they promote you to drive in the trucks. Yeah. And that was always awesome because like, yeah, it gets you out of the shop, but it gets you experience driving, which I had like zero. So I wasn't a very good driver because it's a whole different animal compared to driving a car or a pickup truck or something like that. Significantly bigger. The turning radiuses are different. Everything, just maneuvering a fire truck altogether, especially all different kinds that would come through dependable because there's all these different things that you need to pay attention to. Weight, height, overhang, stopping distance. You gain a whole new respect for it. Police cars, eh, DJ? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so, <laughs> so, of course, it came with its little bumps and bruises, right? If you can catch my drift driving around the yard. Luckily, nothing has ever happened on the road. But again, that kind of comes down to saying, hey, listen, I messed up and not trying to hide me messing up because I could easily just been like, oh, that wasn't me. Luckily, I got better at it. And then eventually after all this driving and still continuing to look after the shop, they said, hey, how do you feel about pump testing? I'm just like, you want me to do that? I don't know the first thing about that. That's great. With a lot of patience and a lot of questions on my part, a lot of patience on uh, Joe's part and the rest of the guys there. I remember when we were doing pump testing there, they have pits. So guys go underneath the trucks and work on them. And we used to flood one of the pits and have like a relay system. So we'd draft and then pump water back into the pit. And it would take forever to set up, especially when it was super cold outside. The yard being so tight, having so many fire trucks and petroleum trucks and other equipment into it. You have to move this truck. You got to move that. It just, it was always a cluster to get set up. So I'd have to get there super early. I wouldn't have so many people in my way and I wouldn't be disturbing other people's work at the same time. So they let me do that. And I started to become, you know, pretty decent at it and came to the point where they just, okay, how do you feel about ULC testing and just certifying the whole truck? I'm like, let's go, let's do it. And again, with a lot of patience from other people and dealing with my many mistakes, learning the process. It worked out and it's some of the most valuable experience I ever had because it built up my confidence. You're not this stupid kid that doesn't know math because that's how I'd always treat myself. I'm like, I'm dumb. I'm stupid. That's why I'm such a crappy student in school. The self-talk wasn't very good. Oh, it was never good. So you put these two things together, the pump testing and the driving, and now they're sending you all across North America yeah. to train departments on the trucks that they're receiving. Yeah. And that was really, really cool. I kind of owe that to one of my mentors as well. His name's Gord, Gord Brimlecombe, shout out. He's somebody who really made a difference in my life. He kind of helped push me along into that and kind of convince my superiors to say, hey, like this kid's got potential. You should let him do it. So they let me pick up and deliver trucks, bring them all over Canada in the States. I mean, I think the longest trip I ever did was like six days from like Ocala, Florida to Grand Prairie, Alberta. That was a trek, man. We had so many good experiences doing that. And it helped me build confidence, like DJ with his IT work, talking to other firefighters. Because like before, I'd be so intimidated by these chiefs and all these other firefighters because they are who I wanted to be. But here I am, like kind of in my own little shell, scared to talk to these guys, right? And feeling super awkward. But eventually, you start to learn your craft and you become competent at it and it builds confidence. They're able to ask me questions and I can answer them honestly and truthfully and not just make up crap on the spot. And I think that was really important in just my development professionally, 
but even just my development as a person. Tell me about the story about Barry. Barry Manser was my old assistant district chief at my volunteer station. Unfortunately, I never got the pleasure of working with him in Brampton because he retired. He was a huge influence on my life. Just because the way he talks to people and how he interacts with people, he's always open and listening. He wants to know about you. But also that, he's just super smart. I've never seen somebody so calmly handle situations in my life. There's only a few times where I've seen him actually get super excited. He's a brilliant man. Anyway, I was looking for another driver to pick up a couple of trucks. I know he's always wanted to go on one of these long, you know, U.S. trips. And I said, hey, why don't you come down with me to South Dakota and we'll pick up the trucks together and we can drive them back. And he's like, oh, Anthony, that'd be great. And I'm thinking, oh, Barry's with me. It's going to be awesome. I can pick his brain more. I can get to know him more. There's just so much that I want to learn from him. Anyway, the whole trip just was a friggin' fuck show, like to be completely, <laughs> like, excuse my language, but it was like from beginning to end. We get to the airport and then we come to find out that our flight is delayed to Chicago because we had to take a connecting flight over to South Dakota. And we're like, okay, whatever. This happens, right? It's happened a few times before. And then we get to Chicago finally. And then we find out that our flight to Sioux Falls is canceled. So I'm trying to keep it together. I'm like, okay, let me practice some Barry Manser and show him that I'm not just going to lose my mind. So we managed to switch flights. I remember running across Chicago O'Hare just to make the flight that we were able to get. So we come to find out that like Sioux Falls had like a record snowstorm that day. Get there. Trucks are good. We check them out. It was like 11 or 12 o'clock at night. I talked to Barry because usually we'd break up the trip a little bit more. I said, how do you feel about waking up a little bit early? I know we should probably get some sleep, but at least we can maybe make up some time and get to Kalamazoo, Michigan. So it's like, yeah, absolutely. So we're making great time, right? We were going to be there by like seven o'clock that night. We made reservations at this nice little steak place that we found. And I couldn't wait to take them there. We get to like the state line. It's in Michigan City, Indiana. We're driving on the highway. I think it was like the I-94. And all these transport trucks pulled over in the opposite lanes. And they're all throwing their hands up in the air. You can see it. They're all kind of freaking out. So I don't know what that's all about. We go under this overpass and all of a sudden I hear bang, 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 bang. I'm like, what the hell was that? And then I see Barry flashing his high beams at me. So we pull over. I check my truck quickly. I'm like, did I hit a deer? I'm like, I didn't see anything run out across the highway. Anyway, I jump out the truck. I run over to Barry and I see this massive hole in Barry's windshield. Luckily on the captain's side and not the driver's side, but it was like two feet from his face. So I open the door because I see him holding his face like this. I thought maybe he got hit with something. So I fling open the door. I go, Barry, are you all right? And again, one of the only times I've ever seen Barry Manser actually freak out. He's just like, what the fuck was that? I think I might have glass in my eyes, but nothing hit me. But like, did the engine blow? Did you kick up something under your truck? No, I didn't hit anything or run anything over. So I'm looking around and there's a big piece of cinder block in the back. You imagine if there was a crew in there, if that was like a working fire truck, that would have killed somebody. Would have killed the captain, would have killed the guy sitting in the back. And it almost killed Barry. It was like two feet from his face. So state troopers eventually come over. They're like, yeah, like this is like the second or third time this month. It's a bunch of teenagers. They just pile the rocks on the overpass for fun. They just fling them off the overpass and hit transport trucks and cars. And state trooper was saying like, the week before, a guy got hit square in the chest. So we end up going to the next truck stop. Luckily, it was only about a mile or two away. We take apart one of the boxes that some of the equipment was in and we patch up the windshield with cardboard and duct tape. And then luckily we're only an hour from Kalamazoo. We get to the hotel. We stop. I get Barry to jump in my truck and I drive him to the hospital. He was cleared. He was fine. There's no glass in his eyes. Thank God. We get back to the hotel. We got 13, maybe 15 hour a day. Turned into like a 22 hour a day. And it was like 4 a.m. And me and Barry Manser walking through the drive-thru of the McDonald's across the street. Like a couple of high teenagers. Luckily, Spartan, their chassis manufacturing plant was an hour away from Kalamazoo. Get patched up, 
took a little while, but got it done. Get on the road. We get on the 401 and then all of a sudden there's mist from under my truck. turns out one of the fuel injectors blew and there's diesel fuel spraying everywhere on the road. So I lift the cab up on the side of the 401 and that's when I finally was like, what the fuck else can go wrong? <laughs> I'm like, this is ridiculous. And Barry's kind of laughing. We uh, ended up getting the truck towed all the way back to Branton and um, that's the Barry Manser story. Some huge lessons learned that day, yeah. without a doubt. So DG, you were volunteering at uh, New Zealand Homestays. Yeah, so for four months I lived in New Zealand, bought a car, camp around and stay at these homestays and do volunteer work. It was so unique and so cool because you'd get a little sliver into these people's lives that you could never expect. So you're doing all these odd jobs, experiencing different things that all these different families have to offer and their ways of life. Out of all the homestays we did, there was one that was kind of crazy. I was there with my then girlfriend and uh, we had gone to kind of the middle of nowhere, like no cell service, no anything. And it's going well for the first bit. And we had committed like two weeks or maybe a month to this place. After like the first few days, there were so many horror movie red flags. And I was like, we, <laughs> we got to go. We got to get out of here. But we weren't scheduled to go back to town where there was Wi-Fi until the following week. We didn't have a car at this point. We couldn't get out of there. We were just trapped in this place. The people that are there, there's a gentleman, his wife, and a young son. And the gentleman was very nice. The wife, though, she was kind of weird with us. We kept hearing stories from them about these other people that stayed with them, and they didn't know why, but they just, like, disappeared in the night. They drove away. They just left. And we're like, oh, that's weird. Why would anyone do that? So after a couple of days, there's some red flags. So I was like, okay, we got to really get out of here. So we told them, hey, we know you're supposed to stay a month. We're only going to stay a week. So on Wednesday, we'll just, we'll figure it out and we got to leave. Well, the wife stopped talking to us completely and would only communicate through their son, which was super weird. I drove over the hose one day, like just a garden hose. And I come to the house after and the son is like, mommy's mad at you you ran over the hose and she's standing there not saying anything just staring at me and you're like i've been in enough movies i know what happens here <laughs> exactly <laughs> <laughs> gotta get out of here so yeah strange things like that happened until we made our escape for the most part though it was really really cool i got so much life experience out of that and i got to meet some really really cool people so you come back and do another season in the yukon yeah do another season in the yukon the Yukon second year was amazing. When I started there, I actually just wanted to get a job, kind of like Anthony, just doing anything. Like I'll sweep the floors kind of thing because I didn't have that experience. But I did get hired as a guide. So the first year was a huge learning year. The second year I got to put into practice. First year I would mainly go out with the other guides to shadow them. And so observing what they're doing, kind of copying them, having good conversations with people and making their stay the best possible. Second year with a little bit of experience under my belt. One, to go off a little bit more on my own and guide people a little bit better. So it was a great year. Um, I learned a lot of stuff. I met some really good people. And I learned a lot of like skills, um, let's say fixing a two-stroke motor. Because the plane would fly you in for the morning. You get dropped off on one of the nearby lakes. Just to give um, a visual for anyone that doesn't know, the lodge is located. You go to Whitehorse. Then it's about either an eight-hour drive, then a 30-minute float plane flight or a two and a half hour float plane flight into like the middle of the mountains. There's no roads. You're right in there. Every day a float plane would pick you up at the lodge, 
fly you out to a remote lake, river, whatever, and I'd just guide two clients for the entire day. Float plane would fly away, and I'd be left on my own. So you got to really take care of people and really know what to do and handle any kind of uncertain circumstances. You're learning every day because unexpected stuff is just happening. Anyways, the season was great. came to an end. I decided now I would pursue firefighting. I don't know exactly what made me find out like that was the exact moment, but I just knew that was the time. So the first process was I started talking to all the firefighters I could. Anyone I knew, any of my dad's friends, parents' friends, whatever, i just talk to them. I'd visit fire halls and just ask like, okay, what are the steps? Like, how do I get in? Found the Ontario Fire Academy. You get to live with other firefighters and see how that experience is going to be. In the meantime, just before I got in, I took up a job doing renovations because I knew that I had zero firefighting experience to bring to the table. I had zero medical experience or anything like that. I had zero any volunteer thing. I just had random experiences, more or less. Experiences that definitely played a huge part in me getting in, but nothing directly related to the job. So I was like, okay, if I can't get a trade in that amount of time, because trades are, I heard, were valued in the service, and that's because, uh, for a number of reasons, but one of them that stood out to me was housing construction. If you know the types of buildings you're going into, you could contribute to your team, and you kind of have eyes through the walls. So, okay, I will do renovations, and so I'll learn housing structure that way. At the same time, I just looked at the other big requirements, DZ license. I'd driven small trucks before, but that's about it. And I knew I had some good volunteer experience for my stuff in New Zealand, but I wanted to improve on that. So I did Habitat for Humanity in Brampton. So it, again, gave me a little bit of insight into housing construction. And it felt really good doing that as well. So it was just the natural thing to do. So I started doing that, went to the Ontario Fire Academy, which is like the new revamped version where you didn't have to go to Texas for the last two weeks. Even getting into the academy, Anthony talked a bit about seeing the other candidates and seeing what other people that are trying to get in look like they all had something going for them i was like oh man what do i got all i had was this gut feeling this passion and the ability to apply my other experiences and to go forward from that so i was just gonna learn from everyone gonna start as a blank slate you started focusing on eating well sleeping well yeah working out yeah, that was one of my advantages. I had failed this fire course when I was younger, when I was 16 years old. So I was terrified to even do that. I was like, what if I suck at this stuff? I really do suck. So I'm just going to prepare myself. I used all the techniques. I was always one of the first ones to go to sleep. It's like 10 o'clock. People would go out or play video games or something. I'd always choose, okay, I need to get a good sleep. Let all the information I've learned soak in because I didn't know any of it from before. And it was all new and it was covering a lot. So I'd study, I'd make sure to work out and then get a good sleep. And that was important for me or else the stress, it would just overwhelm me. So rinse and repeat, do this all the time. I met some great friends there, lifelong friends. We studied together, we did everything kind of together. Course went well, I put everything I had into that. I graduated with a top mark in the, the class, which amazed me because, again, I'd never done any of this, but I applied those stress overcoming techniques and it really worked and it proved to me that they work. You just got to trust in the process. You just got to have the discipline, so, man. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. For sure. So, yeah, it's the discipline as well. So, yeah. so do you apply to a few departments? Yeah. You go through the school and people kind of tell you, okay, out of this class of 30, maybe two, three people will get hired. Yeah. Something like that. Then there's all these statistics for whoever does the courses 
how many thousands finish it and graduate and then how many actually get hired. It's like one or two out of a thousand. These ridiculous numbers everyone's throwing out. And then after you're done your course, I started noticing people with fire shirts, college shirts, and I'd ask them, hey, where'd you go? Like, where are you hired on or something like that? Almost all of them weren't hired on. They were just, they had done a course or something. And it was just like, is it possible to even get a job? So you start thinking this, your self-talk, you have this internal battle and you got to just say, no, no, it's possible and I'm going to do it. And you reflect on the things you've learned. And I've proven it to myself that I could at least do the course, be successful at it. I'm going to keep going through. So before I was even done, I wrote for uh, One City Oshawa. And when I got there, there was like a thousand other people that all looked like firefighters. Like I was intimidated. I was like, wow, these people are all right for the job. Like they are all firefighters. So when I wrote, even though I'd done well in my schooling, it was heavily focused on hazmat and we hadn't covered that chapter yet. So I was like, okay, well, I'll just guess C for all these questions. Anyways, that was the start and it got me kind of excited, but also nervous for applying because it was a big batch of a lot of people that had a lot of skills and everyone's writing for this stuff and it's ultra competitive. So when you're faced with that kind of adversity, you again, got to trust in the process, got to trust in your gut at any one point in time, you either have the time the finances or the drive to do it. And if you have all three, it's only a matter of time before you're hired. So I knew that. And right now I had all three. So I was like, okay, I got to do this. I started really building my resume, really working hard. The next eight months, I dedicated everything I had towards getting hired as like everyone did. Got my EMR, started building my resume in that way. That was a critical portion on the resume. So I started working for those finish line race tents and stuff sporting like 10k race tents that stuff and started just volunteering eventually I got offered a job doing that so I was like okay check those boxes just really try to make myself a well-rounded individual so I could at least make it to the interview because if I got the check marks and I could make it to the interview I knew I could speak about myself and my experiences again it's an unknown but I could get through that two months after graduating I got an interview and I was like so excited for it I was like I gotta nail this did the interview felt like I did really well and then that's it it's just silent after that you know your hopes and expectations get built up so high for an interview and you have zero feedback so you don't know where you went wrong and you think you've done amazing but you have no check really mm -hmm. so that's about at the point where I realized that all the work that I had done up until that point to get on that was probably only half of what I needed to do the whole interview process was another beast in its own you have to dedicate all those hours you've ever done to building up your resume now again to just perfecting your interviews it's definitely very humbling to be at that spot but you realize it and then again you're faced with a fork like you just got to keep going there's no end in sight you got to just keep pushing so a lot of people go many years with doing that battle I was lucky it didn't take me as long got another interview shortly after and this one I was even more prepared for and I thought I would get it for sure didn't get it again didn't even get a second interview didn't even hear back anything so these major ups and downs you're going through you got to find it in you to push forward even harder I guess my keys to success at the end I had started videotaping myself because I had no idea how I was even looking for the interview so I'd do all the questions exactly how I said, and then I'd watch the videos, and I was like, wow, I, I don't look like a firefighter. I'm not confident in what I'm saying. I'm just, like, rehearsing the lines. 
So then I drew on my acting skills. I'm going to improve this. I'm not going to be too self-critical. I'm going to be positive, go through it, and really live the stories that I tell. So that was a huge key to success. And I think after I could nail a whole interview all on video and be very proud of it, then when the interview came, they could throw any question at me. As long as I dove into it and was honest and went from my experiences. And now I knew I at least looked confident doing it too. So that helped me a lot. And then Brampton was, I had a lot of ties to Brampton. I was a boxer with the Bramley Boxing Club back in the day. And when that came along, I was just, it was right place, right time. I was totally ready. The funniest part about it is probably everyone talks about when you get that call. You remember when you got that call and you got the dream job and stuff like that? Yeah. Yeah, I remember when I got the first one, they're like, okay, we're going to call your references. And I'm like, I'm in, right? I'm in, I'm in. And you don't know. And so like it was a couple months before I heard. And then it turns out I got an email and it said, okay, like come on in for your fitting, you're in. And it was like an email. I was like, this is so 21st century. (laughs) Like it's not a call. They'd send you a text, hey, you're in. But Anthony, you actually got that phone call. I think it was like mid-January or something like that. I think when we finally found out that we... Got the job. Yeah, right? something like that. If you guys haven't picked up already, uh, DJ and I were in the same recruit class. I remember getting the reference call and waiting and waiting and just kind of like, you know, like just twiddling my thumbs, like when's it going to come? And I remember calling because I was just starting to get impatient. I really wanted to know. Yeah. And I remember calling the HR department and uh, they're like, we'll get back to you soon. So I'm thinking I'm going to call in like a few minutes, but then it ends up being like, you know, hours. Cause it was like midday. It was like probably like, you know, two o'clock in the afternoon. And I end up going out uh, to a bar with my buddy, just like an old friend of mine from Dependable. Him and I are sitting down and we're talking. And then all of a sudden I see the city of Brampton call, but it's like eight o'clock at night. I'm in a bar. I sprinted out of the bar. They probably thought I was like dining and dashing. Went in my truck. I'm like, hello. Hi. Hi. Right. All frantic. And like, hello, it's so-and-so. Just, uh, just wanted to return your call. Um, just want to let you know that you should be receiving an email anytime now okay i didn't know what to say right like she didn't say like oh yeah you got the job of course instead of like checking to make sure i got it i'm like thanks and i hang up so i go back there and i'm like dude i'm supposed to be getting an email like right now so i'm like scrolling scrolling nothing refresh refresh nothing so my buddy jake texts me right and Jake's like dude i got the email did you get yours and i'm like no <laughs> he's like oh shit man <laughs> like I, he probably didn't even know what to say and there i am it was a couple days later i was working almost lunchtime and i was filling up a jerry can full of diesel and i go and i look and it says congratulations i drop everything and i'm just like yeah and then there's this poor guy working out there i'm screaming my head off he's like dude are you good he's like are you all right i'm like yeah i just got some really good news man <laughs> <laughs> my bosses were so cool at the time because i think i worked an hour i called my fiance i called my mom and dad and you know my mentors and but there was a reason there was a delay between your email and jake's Yeah, I guess because me and another guy in our class have very similar last names. I guess they thought they sent it to me and they didn't or it didn't come through. I had to wait to get mine because that HR person was away on a conference with like the chiefs or something like that. So I had to wait till she got back for her to send the email again. So it was like two days of my heart being in my throat, not knowing what to expect. Did I get it? Did I not get it? Yeah, that was a very nerve-wracking two days. I guess I can put this to both of you. How long did the elation last before you felt like the real work was about to begin? You go ahead, Deej. I remember being probably the happiest I'd ever been in my life at that point. And it's hard to know when it ended, but the first day of recruit class, you're like, okay, 
this is where it starts. By this time, we've been through this cycle so many times. Finally, you get there, and then... The carrot moves. Yeah, the carrot moves a bit of a distance, and now you're in it right again. So you're kind of used to it, and you're like, okay, it's game time right again. Turn it up a few notches. Let's do it. So that joy, it's always with you. It never leaves. It gets tempered with, okay, this is this is business now. It's time to learn. It's time to start really getting into your craft. And, and do what you said you were going to do in your interview. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It comes back in flashes sometimes, right? Oh, God, yeah. But certain things ignite it, and you're like, yes, this is just the best ever. Like, I'm where I'm supposed to be, and it feels good. How was recruit class for you guys since, since you went together? How'd that go? It was awesome. Yeah, it was awesome. It definitely has its humbling moments and its ups and downs. I know I felt like I have a pretty good handle on some things with my volunteer experience, but at the same time, I knew that there's a lot for me to learn here and just learn from all the people in my recruit class. There are so many people from so many different backgrounds that brought so much to the table. There's a lot to pick from and a lot to learn from. I just wish that there was more time to get to know every single person really well. As DJ put it, you're living out your dream. That elation comes back in flashes. Even now, being on the trucks for almost a couple of years, sit back after you're having a nice conversation with somebody in the truck, coming back from a call or you're just riding around the rig, coming back from a standby, even at like three in the morning, right? You're friggin' dead tired. But you realize all that stuff that you went through, all that stuff that you had to go to, the testing, even though the volunteer work, some of it was really fun, but all that time away from your loved ones and doing other things that you enjoy. This is all necessary work to get to this dream. Not to sound too cliche, but when finally a dream is realized, you appreciate every damn moment of it, even through all the hard times in recruit class. DJ, I think you remember like when we just started RIT training. Oh, I you remember. Know, you yeah. know what I'm talking about? Yeah. So Deej and I were, were we in the same platoon? No. But we uh, ended up in the same group for that. We were in the same group for that one, yeah. I think we were in the same group a lot for Rich Rain. I think we just kind of stuck in the same group. Yeah. Deej is pretty forgettable, so it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> can't forget you can't, or it could have been, yeah. I don't know. You can't forget KD, man. No way. No way. <laughs> Thanks. Um, I think it was one of the first drills we did one of the first days we started writ training. And anyone who listens to this or goes through any writ training at all, you know how demanding that can be. It's pretty intense. Obviously, we all don't want to mess up. We all want to do well and do a good job. But again, this is training. If there's anywhere you're going to screw up, you want to screw up in training. You start to work out the kinks. It prepares you to adapt and overcome. So anyway, we're doing the search and rescue drill on the second floor there with uh, one of the legendary guys on the department, John Cadiz. He's watching us go through the thing, right? And some little miscommunication happened and I ended up losing my partner. Anyone who knows me knows that I'm super hard on myself. I had Cadiz and I had Robillard a couple of times tell me like, you gotta stop being so goddamn hard on yourself, man. Just relax. It's gonna be okay. Just keep chucking along. You're doing well. It's all good. So me and DJ come down. We're all having our little powwow afterwards. And DJ was tasked with leading us around. And me and my partner are blindfolded. We're just going around and we're searching. We're doing our thing. And the whole time as Cadiz is talking, I'm sitting there and just self-loathing. I'm just saying, you're an idiot. How could you screw such a simple drill up? And there's DJ looking at me and he thinks I'm pissed off at him. Because like it's all over my face, right? Unfortunately, I wear my heart on my sleeve a little too much. If anything, if you see if I look angry, it's because I'm angry at myself. Deej comes up to me and he's like, dude, man, I'm sorry about that. I'm sorry. Like that's, like, that's totally my fault. And I was like, dude, no, I'm not even mad at you. It's kind of like even a bonding moment for DJ and I. He sent me a text saying, hey, listen, man, you know, that was a tough drill today. I'm there for you. You're here for me. We're going to get through this together, all of us. And when you go through things like that, that's the stuff that bonds you. Again, not to be cliche, but this is one of the things, at least that I said in my interview, it's the family aspect of being in the fire department. Because to me, that's important. 
And I had every intention of going into this recruit class and coming out as these are my brothers and sisters now. And I got their back for the rest of our careers and then on. And there's a lot of little moments like that, I think, through recruit class. And it was, it was awesome. And your class actually saw something in you and chose you as valedictorian. So how was it speaking at the grad? <laughs> uh, that was nerve wracking, man. But just for them to pick me, for them to have the confidence in me to stand up there in front of like all their friends and family and all the people that have supported them over the years. To this day, that hits me pretty hard. It touches my heart. It does because never in a million years did I ever think that I'd be that person standing up in a podium giving a valedictorian speech. In high school, there are straight A model students. And here I am. I was like this dud in high school, or at least like that's how I felt I was, right? And I can't thank them enough for giving me that honor. It's pretty amazing that sometimes you don't see it in yourself. We kind of saw it in you from the beginning. And hearing you say this, it's funny because you're like, what? what? You didn't notice this? But it, it also goes with our career. We're all the same in some way, that we have all these qualities that some of the general population maybe doesn't have. But we see it as normal. We see it as like, that's just the way we are. And until yeah. someone else points it out, because you keep moving the carrot forward, keep pushing the bar and stuff, and then it becomes you. So Yeah. Before we talk about your rookie experiences uh, in keeping of true transparency, Deej, you're actually on my crew. Yeah. <laughs> so yep. choose your words wisely, right? <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> no, this but you like offered- bad, a- it'll be edited out anyway. So. <laughs> No, you offered a bit of a short list of uh, how to make a good impression and succeed. Uh, Maybe between the two of you, you can offer your advice on the topic. Yeah, so I guess this is geared towards anyone that's just becoming a rookie. Or even if you're just trying to get in, this is what is definitely expected of you when you become a rookie. This is how you become a good one. There's obviously way more you could do, but this is some keys to success that we've seen as we've just gone through that process. So... I think the first and biggest one is all about your attitude. You always, always, always want to try in every single aspect. So in all the little points that we go over, your attitude has to be the backbone to it. You have to always try, whether it's making food, going the extra mile and cleaning things, studying the truck, learning your role, and even in your conversations, you want to get to know everyone else and just know that it takes time for them to get to know you as well and for you to become part of that family you got to kind of think people have been doing this for a long time so it's going to take time to mold into that and you have a lot to learn from everyone else so one really important thing is always be learning throughout your whole career but it starts in recruit class for sure you're always asking questions always be transparent with people don't pretend to know anything you don't know don't be afraid of getting judged for that it's okay to ask questions. It's okay. There's people that want to help you. You're expected to know and you're expected to learn. But if you don't know, someone will teach you and you go forward from there. So you can't be afraid of that kind of thing. Always wanting to learn and having that drive to better yourself as a firefighter and as a professional. Mm-hmm. And I've also as a person because you're spending a very long amount of time with the people on your crew. This goes back when I first started with Kaladin to know and how to check yourself and be honest and be hardworking. They always say like, be the hardest working one in the room. Like, sure, but it's not a competition. It should never be a competition. Mm-hmm. It should be a team effort, like going out and start training on this task and everyone might join in. But for me, when I came onto the floor, the most important thing was knowing that my crew know I'm reliable. And if I don't know something, I'm going to work my ass off to try and learn what I need to learn and know what I need to know. So that way I can make sure that they get home to their families. And then of course myself, I think that's really important. And it goes back to that family aspect. 
That's what you become there. And you really need to check your ego at the door when you start working or when you start training. You pick it out of your pocket and you're just like, nope, don't need this anymore, at least for today. Mm -hmm. And you take every lesson learned. You try not to be so hard on yourself. It's easier said than done. But at least have somebody that you can lean on and talk to about things that you experience at work. Even the people on your crew, because I found that was very important the first couple of months that I would get down on myself and I'd be hard on myself for not knowing something as well as I should or making a mistake. And they could see me sitting there stewing in the back of the truck. I would always make sure I told them, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to make sure that I improve and I'm going to be the guy that I need to be for you guys and for myself. But how can we handle being self-critical in a healthy way? I love this story. There's one about self-talk. I remember actually you came in and talked a little bit about self-talk during our recruit class. I'll never yeah. forget it because I'd never thought of it much before. But how many thousands of words does your mind go through per minute? I think it's 3,000. Crazy. So how many of those do you identify with and how many of those are positive thoughts versus negative thoughts? Yeah. There's that old story about the two wolves. It's like a Cherokee story or something like that. So uh, Elder is going to his grandson and says, okay, in my mind and in your mind and in my soul, there are two wolves at battle. One's an evil wolf and one is a good wolf. And the evil wolf um, is constantly spreading kind of insecurities into your mind. It's constantly mm. spreading guilt, evil thoughts, just you're not good enough. The good wolf is trying to do positive things. It's trying to say all the positive about your life, mm. about what you're doing. And they're battling, and they're battling, and they're battling. And the little boy says, well, which one's going to win? And the elder says, the one that you feed, right? So you got to recognize in your mind you have two different sides of you, and they're one saying positive and one saying negative. And if you're listening and feeding the negative one, then that's going to take over. But if you oh, yeah. hear that yeah. and you don't feed it, then it's just the positive one. So that's one little story that really resonated with me. Oh, yeah. You could do a bunch of physical things. The self-talk is one I focus on mentally. I focus on that good, positive self-talk. Yeah. Physically, getting good foods, having a good diet. Like, this is great for your job anyways, too. But um, working out, exercising, do things you like. I like yoga, meditation, those kind of things. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And if you're having a bad day or something like that, I find I just go to sleep and the next morning is good. I don't have to turn my day around completely that one day. I could tie the day. I don't have to lose. I could just tie it. The next day will be a better one. So that's what's helped me. I don't know what's helped you, but. You're absolutely right. I love that story. Yeah. Because it's true. But you also need to be honest with yourself sometimes and say, it's okay to feel like this. It's okay to feel sad right now because it's okay to be sad, but you'll absolutely. get over it. Just remembering that there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Well, that's a positive way of addressing and acknowledging and going through those emotions. Right, mm -hmm. right. Exactly. So you can have a critical thought about something you may have not done properly. Yeah. But for sure. process that in a positive way. Mm -hmm. When I really decided to start applying to fire departments, if I go to Festi or OFAI and do the testing there, I'd be just hammering myself when I'm leaving that place, right? Mm -hmm. And luckily through good mentorship and then learning how to stay out of my own head. And like you said, meditation. Everyone has their own path. I'm yes. not saying everyone needs to meditate, but it's something that kind of helped me realize what I was doing to myself with all these negative and intrusive talks. Mm -hmm. And then that's when I started to become a little bit more successful in saying to myself, it's okay to be confident and say that I know something. So talk about it. You don't have to hide behind and pretend that you don't know something because you're afraid of sounding cocky. Because right. people can read cockiness really well compared to just 
confidence. Okay, yeah, he knows what he's talking about. Mm-hmm. So you guys find that your crews let you know what you're doing well. What's the fine balance between tough love and positive feedback? Being a rookie, you should never expect people to be like, hey, you're doing a great job. Keep doing this. Expect that people will tell you if you need to improve something. And if people aren't kind of saying anything, keep doing that and more. So you shouldn't need a pat on the back from everyone. Yeah, You should just do what should be done. Anthony and I were talking, if there's a dirty spot on the floor, you shouldn't need to clean it up so that everyone sees. And they're like, hey, he's doing a good job. You should just do it because it's the right thing to do and it needs to be cleaned. And if you don't do it, you're going to just push that to someone else to do. Mm -hmm. You're kind of expected to do those jobs. So as a rookie, you have to really embrace that. And whatever you think needs to be done, you push it further, not so that everyone sees, but because that's the right thing to do. And you hope the next rookie after you does the same because that's the best way that things work. So I don't think you should expect a pat on the back. If it happens, that's great. But... Never expected. Mm-hmm. We're very lucky already. We go out in the public and we grocery shopping and they'll just be like, hey guys, you know, thank you for all your hard work or thank you for your service. And you're thinking like, well, freaking this day hasn't even that bad. We've had like maybe a call or two calls. Compared to other jobs, we're lucky that people have this perception of fire and they feel the way they do about us. I think we have every right to uphold that vision that the public has of us. If you're getting into firefighting because of money benefits, a pat on the back or whatever the case may be, you're getting into it for the wrong reason. You should be doing it because you genuinely want to help people. You want to be there, not just for the public, but for your crew, for their families, for that fire family. It's not something that you can really ever take for granted. Like DJ said, if you see something needs to be done at the hall, just do it. It's going to take you two seconds probably. If you feel like you need to improve at something, open a book, go out there and start training, read up on some articles. It's important for our growth as firefighters and also so your fire family can continue to rely on you. Is the job what you thought it would be? Has anything been a pleasant surprise or has anything been a complete wake-up call? Yeah, it's all really been a pleasant surprise in the sense because getting in, you have these vague ideas of what it's going to be like. For me, I could just speak from my own example. I had almost never... I don't know if I've even been in a fire hall before. Like as a child I was, but before I decided to go to fire school and really commit to this, I'd never really seen a day in the fire hall. So I didn't really know what it was about. I just knew the symbolism behind the firefighting career is like a family, a bond, everyone cooks together. You do all these things together. So when you get in, you immediately want to be a part of that. But it takes time. It really takes Mm -hmm. a long time to solidify. And you talked about our recruit class. We solidified bonds through adversity, through tough times and being there for one another. So it doesn't just happen instantly when you get on. You can't be comfortable when you get on either. You got to kind of know that it's going to take time. So going through your first year, you feel it out for the whole year. That was not a big shocker to me, but it's just something I learned. It's just, okay, everything takes time, get to know each other. And before you know it, it progressively gets better and better and better and better. And next thing you know, this is like your family and you're really looking forward to going into work. Before it was like, okay, maybe I'll fight a fire today or maybe I'll (laughs) save someone's life or something. And that is such a small part of the job. It is what we do and what we are expected to do. But 99% of the time you are with your crew bonding and doing things and training and having good conversations and stuff. So now you're looking forward to catching up with your crew, seeing them again. What are we going to do today? How many laughs are we going to have? And then what are we going to go through together? And 
when you're off shift, you're thinking about how's this person doing? And then they're checking up on you or you maybe plan something outside of shift. It's a really cool dynamic. I always thought of the fire family as like this thing. It's like a second family, but I never could really imagine it. And now I feel like I'm kind of getting into it. It's amazing. It really is amazing. So yeah, that's probably the biggest thing for me. Yeah. Be yourself and don't try to make it seem like you know more than you do. Just learn from the guys and get to know them. And you see the bonds that are already made. You see how close or tight-knit a group already is. They crack a lot of jokes and it's it's never a dull moment on our crew. It's awesome. But I remember the whole time I'm so buried in trying to make sure the hall was clean and I knew my stuff and trying to navigate that. It kind of takes away from getting to know the people on your crew a bit. But now that things are a bit more relaxed and there's bonds made and friendships made, I can't wait to come to work. I can't wait. Is it Friday, Sunday yet? Let's go. Let's do this. I'm ready to find out about their week and see how everything is. Someone on our crew just had a baby. How's your baby doing? You always hear, oh, I hate Mondays. I never have that feeling. I'm never dreading to go to work. I can't wait to get to the hall and start spending the day with these guys. It's awesome. Being yourself and it being your career. Mm -hmm. That's it. You touched on it a little bit, getting in the career for the wrong reasons or the right reasons. Yeah. The career is great in every single aspect. It draws a whole bunch of different people, but I think the biggest thing it draws is people that have values and morals in line with that of a firefighter. Ever since you're a little kid, you have this image of a firefighter. You've waved to the fire trucks. You know that you could trust them, that they're loyal, they're courageous, they're there to save you, they have strength, they're like a model citizen. So if you have those values already and you're attracted to that type of career, then those two things are in sync and the beauty of it is almost every person you work with have those same values and have those same things in mind. So you almost instantly connect. It's great because you want all your friends and family to have those same values that you have. And in this career, everyone kind of does. It's very unique. And so, yeah, you look forward to it. You really do. And it's not just the actual aspects of what we do on the job, but it's the people that make it as well. So it's oh, it's yeah. the full circle of the yeah. job. It's amazing. Before we close out, any final thoughts? Yeah, I just uh, I got to thank you, Scotty, for having us on here. Just yeah. listen to your other podcasts and the amazing people you have on with the, the resumes that they have. I'm like, wow, these people are great. And I learned so much from every single one. Even Anthony over here, he's awesome. Like, I just feel so appreciative thanks for having me on here thanks for having me tell my story i know it's a bit of a different one but to anyone that's looking to get on that's looking to become a firefighter every single thing you do in your life it'll line up and you learn from all those experiences and you could apply them it doesn't matter what background you have as long as you have a passion and determination you could absolutely do it i think the self-talk thing is important because even coming here i was like wow this is a big stage. And what you've done is truly amazing. I'm blessed to be on here. I'm appreciative. Thank you very much, Scotty. You're welcome. It's great to have you bring the story so fresh into your careers Yeah. before some of it may get lost in the shuffle. Yeah, this is an interesting one because Anthony and I come from two different backgrounds and end up the same place. And I think that's what you find in the fire service. Everyone has their own story, their own things that they bring to the table. And it's amazing because you have this common passion and you have this common bond with everyone but you got there in totally different ways it's a really humbling experience to see the list of people that have been on the podcast because there's a lot of guys that have spoken that i look up to very much and i just want to continue to learn from and to sit beside dj here he's a great dude and i feel very honored to be in the recruit class with you and to be a firefighter with you at the same department man this job if you're passionate about it and it's your dream to do it 
when you finally get here and you realize how not just lucky, all the work, all the money, all the highs and lows, all the hard times, it all comes full circle, especially when you get that phone call or email. You'd probably do two or three times that amount. Yeah. It's one of the most incredible experiences that you'll ever have. And you just got to appreciate every day that you have here. And you really got to keep pushing. You got to keep learning. Always just check your ego. And remember that this job is nothing but a never-ending study. You always need to be a student of this job. And for anyone who's still trying out there, and if you're having a tough time, remember that the more determination, the more passion, the more hard work you put into this, it's going to pay off. Just keep that foot on that gas pedal and just never, ever give up. It'll happen for you because it happened for us. And we both feel very lucky. Guys, thanks for listening. And thank you, Scotty, again for having us. You're welcome. Thanks for doing this, guys. Yeah, thanks, guys. Okay. Take care. Yeah, see ya.